Guys, um, indeed I am going, well, let me, let me hold that for a second. For about nine months now, I, I have been leading you in something that, that I hope is a reminder that Christianity is a creedal religion. That is, it's not based on so much what we feel as it is what we believe together. A belief system that we share. We did this back in October, and people just really responded. It's the Apostles' Creed. We do it once a month, but it's a reminder that we believe things and we believe them together. So I'm asking you to stand with me as we quote the Apostles' Creed together. It's not in your bulletin, but it's up on the screen, so you can follow along with the screens. So here's what I'm doing. I'm asking you, brother and sister in Christ, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Thank you, my brother and sister. That's what you believe. That's what we share together. Now, in terms of that term, the Holy Catholic Church, that's not the Roman Catholic Church. It's just a word that refers to the Catholicity of the, of the Christian Church, the globalness of the Christian Church. Now, Yes, Susie and I are leaving for four weeks. We're going back to Baku. And when I was invited to go to Baku, I didn't know where it was. And I, 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 I bet you don't know where it is, or at least many of you. Um, if you know where Iran is, then it's just north of Iran. Uh, it's the capital city of Azerbaijan, and Azerbaijan and Iran share a border on the south. Baku is the, is the, is the capital city. Because... Azerbaijan is an oil-producing nation. British Petroleum, uh, BP, has a big presence in Baku. And so there's a small international church. That means it speaks English. And it's populated, really, with Scots and Brits who are running um, British Petroleum. And so the, the government of Azerbaijan wants to keep British Petroleum happy and has allowed them to have a church. So every Sunday, for the next four Sundays, I'll be preaching in that church um, it'll be 350 people or so there, and in the audience, we don't know who, there will be a government representative to make sure that I don't say anything against Islam because Azerbaijan is a, uh, is a uh, Muslim nation. Um, but I get a chance to preach the... Oh, uh, out of that 350, probably 100 of them will be there only to hear the English language spoken. They're not there to hear what I have to say or to hear me teach or anything. They just want to hear the English language spoken. But there'll be Azerbaijanis, there'll be uh, uh, Afghans, there'll be Russians, there'll be uh, Uzbeks, uh, there'll be Iranians, all in the congregation. Uh, it's, a, it's really a marvelous uh, privilege to be able to do it. Last year we saw a young um, Afghan couple come to know Jesus Christ, and we're hoping to, that God will allow us to see more of that this time. So I'm over there for four weeks. 
preaching in that church, that's where we're going. That's what we'll be doing. And we'll, Lord willing, see you back here on July the 29th. Now, grab your Bibles and open it to uh, the book of Jonah. As you know, we here at Gracie Van work through books. Uh, I'm convinced that that's the best way that you will get a balanced diet. Um, it's not me that's balanced, but the Bible is, and if we go through it, then you will ultimately get balanced. But, but because we're going through, you know, uh, uh, books and chapters of the Bible, from time to time we run into things that are a little more difficult, such is the case this morning. Let me read it to you, and then I'll explain further. Uh, it's found in verse 10 of chapter 3, where we find, this is my whole text, one verse. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, this word, this endures forever. Guys, when we first um, um, uh, started looking at chapter 3, I told you, I called it a spicy little chapter because I said there were so many things in there that were worthy of our, um, of our consideration. Remember, we, we looked at verse 1 and talked about the word of the Lord coming to Jonah a second time, and we talked about grace that Sunday, and then last week, uh, what I pointed out is the centrality of the, of the word and the message that the only thing that Jonah had a right to say in Nineveh was the message that God had given to him. We talked about that. And I said to you last week that, uh, I said, next week we're going to look at his sermon, Jonah's sermon, which is contained in verse 4. Um, and I've changed my mind. Uh, and here's why. We will look at that sermon, but it will require two Sundays to take a look at it. And I didn't want to preach part one this morning and then come back five weeks from now and preach part two. This felt like I would lose you. I lose you in a week, much less five weeks. So um, what I'm going to do is do this other thing that's in chapter three that seems to cause Christians a fair degree of indigestion. Um, there is a thorny little theological issue that's contained in, in verse 10 of chapter three that, that troubles people when they come to it. And so what I want to do is um, try to take this elephant that's in the room, verse 10, and try to whittle it down to size just a bit. Now, guys, I, I know that when you hear me say something like thorny little theological issue, that some of you will immediately turn off and say, I'm really not interested in thorny little theological issues. I, I beg to differ. I, I believe you are interested. Oh, no, Dr. Young, I, I, really, I really don't care about all that stuff. All I want to know is to how to hack it on, uh, you know, on Monday morning. Okay, well, then I have a question for you. How do you hack it? How do you navigate life and all of its complexities and all of its challenges when it comes to the nitty-gritty of what you have, what you call your life, how do you cope? Okay, I want to suggest this is how we do it, all of us. 
all of us. We are in um, a certain situation that is rather demanding. It's somewhat confusing and complex. I don't really know exactly what I should do, so here's what I do. I size up my situation, and I make a decision based on an internal belief system which guides me to what I hope will be a decent, good, biblical, godly decision. That's how we do it, guys. That's how the non-Christian world does it. They have an internal belief system, too. And they make decisions based on their internal belief system. And so, in reality, you must be interested in thorny little theological issues because the question is, the God who exists, what is he like? Have we not been taught over the years, have we not been taught that God is immutable? That's a word that simply means he's unchangeable. Uh, That God is not fickle like me. That because he's immutable, his his promises and his commitments to us are firm and lasting and, and we can count on them because God is not changeable he's immutable were we not taught that well i hope you were because it's the truth god is immutable and then we come to a verse like this verse 10 chapter 3 the book of jonah and we're thinking now wait a minute um that doesn't seem to uh to, to, to fit in this whole immutability of God thing. And so there's a fair degree of heartburn among evangelicals about Jonah 3.10. So what I want to do is try and show you that there need be no heartburn and you can relax, okay? Now, let me say in, 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 a, in a word I, I hope which is pastorally kind, um... I can understand why we're often confused. There is so much out there like Joel Osteen who is telling the world that we're supposed to be healthy and wealthy all the time. Or then there's identity theology, or there's liberation theology. There's another theology called open theology, which basically says that God is up in heaven waiting to see what you will decide so that before he can make a decision himself. So he's just uh, waiting to see what you do so that he'll know what to do next. You know, between Oprah and Joel Osteen, uh, there's, no, there's no wonder that we're confused. Um, so what we want to try and do is figure this out in such a way that we know the God who exists and what he's like better. And I'm saying to you, If we can do that, that's a very practical issue. Uh, It will help us cope if we can remove the confusion and see clearly what's being said here. That's my challenge. Now let me tell you real quickly before we go, before we get going. Um, 
This is not the only place in the Old Testament where you see this idea of God relenting. You can find it a couple of times in uh, Exodus 32. You can find it in, in Amos chapter 7. You can find it in the book of Jeremiah. The, the, um, the Old Testament is not embarrassed by telling us that God relented. Okay? Now that troubles us, but the Old Testament doesn't seem to be so troubled by it. Um, so so it's, it's found several little places in the Old Testament. Now, that said, let's try to unravel it. The first thing that I want you to notice is really found in verse 2. I didn't read that this morning, but I didn't read it last week. The first thing that I want you to see is in verse 2 where it says, Go to Nineveh, that great city. Um, now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Folks, um, that's an important little factoid, and, I, and I'll show you why in just a minute. This is a city that's so big that it required a three-day journey to get from one side to the other. It's a big city, a significant city, a, a significant a diplomatic center, a city where the pantheon of Greek gods had failed them and failed them miserably. So here's the point. How do you explain that one man with a five-word sentence, a five-word sermon, brought an entire city-state to repentance? And, and though we're not told this exactly, there is a hint in the text that it took him one day. So how do you explain massive numbers of conversions with one man preaching one day a five-word sermon in a great city the size of Nineveh and its converted? Folks, if Billy Graham were to have a, a crusade in, in a big city like this, he would have hundreds of workers to assist him. But we've got one man with a five-word sermon in one day, and the whole city-state is converted. How do you explain that? How do you explain the, the city streets lined with people to hear this nobody uh, confront them with their sin? Do you explain that in purely human terms? I don't. Here's my explanation. So powerful is this God and his plan for that city that he needs only one man who will reach hundreds of thousands and that one man has just gone through the digestive tract of a, of a whale to get there, all of that done because God is so determined to bring Nineveh to himself. The winds of God's Spirit moving over that entire city in Nineveh, plus one man with a five-word sermon, preaching it for one day, equals a converted nation. Guys, do you really believe that Jonah worked feverishly 
24-7 while God looked on, wringing his hands and waiting to see just how Nineveh was going to respond? Or do you believe that God authored this? That God is behind the conversion of this city-state? And he uses the instrumentality of the prophetic office to accomplish it. Gang, the announcement of God's anger over sin and the certainty of doom spoken through the mouth of one of his prophets, in this case Jonah, is exactly how God always saves. May I say that again? The announcement of God's anger over sin and the certainty of doom spoken through the mouth of one of his prophets, in this case Jonah, that's how he always saves. Now, folks, the solution to all of your indigestion over this relenting word, the solution is found in a statement in the book of Jeremiah. I want you to thumb on over there or scroll on over there, however you're going to get there. But if you can find Jeremiah 18, I think this will eliminate all the questions you've ever had. Two verses out of Jeremiah 18. Are you there? <laughs> Let me read those to you. Verses 7 and 8, Jeremiah 18. They read like this. If at any time I declare concerning a nation or a kingdom that I will pluck up and break down and destroy it. And if that nation concerning which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent of the disaster that I intended to do for it. Guys, did you see that? Did you, did you listen as I read that? That's Nineveh. Gang, this is the heart of the prophetic message. All of them, not just Jonah, all of the prophets. This thing that goes on in Nineveh is nothing more than God fulfilling his promised word right here. Gang, for God not to relent would mean that God is changeable. Because, you see, God has always used the, the message of his promised forgiveness placed in the mouth of one of his prophets to bring about the salvation of his people. Folks, if God had not relented, then he would be mutable. But what you see him doing in the book of Jonah is simply his carrying out his promised provisions on the heels of repentance. That's what the prophet was supposed to do. He was supposed to get to this place that God wanted him, tell them this. And when they repented, then the doom would be set aside. Guys, what God did for Nineveh using Jonah in accord with his word 
is what God did for me and what God did for you. There's a Jonah in all of our lives. In my life, it was a woman. We'll call her Jonahette. Her name was Virginia, Virginia Schmidt. The statement of doom is never the final word. If doom was God's fixed purpose, then why did he send Jonah over there in the first place? What you see taking place in Nineveh is simply the fulfillment of his promise found in Jeremiah chapter 18, verses 7 and 8. For him not to have done so would mean that he was not faithful to his promises. Now, guys, here's the good news in this story, this story that unfolds in Nineveh. Guilt. The guilt brought on by my own sin is not a cul-de-sac. That is, it's not a place where I am trapped where there is no possible means of exit. I am not stuck in there. There is a way out. God always issues threats with the possibility of repentance. You who think you are stuck because of your drugs or your alcohol or the affair or the porn. Folks, there is a way out of there. And the route out is called repentance. Your sin, as bad as it is, and mine, has not driven us into a place where we are stuck without any hope of getting out. There's a path out. And the path out's called repentance. Well, okay then. That... um, That settles my question about relenting, Dr. Young, but I've I've got another one. I mean, did Nineveh then get away with her sin? Was her sin just kind of swept under the carpet? Never. You see, ladies and gentlemen, Mercy is never earned by our repentance. But mercy is earned, just not by us. Guys, mercy was earned not because I did well, but because Jesus Christ did well on my behalf. 
Jesus Christ suffers the punishment for Nineveh's sin and for my sin so that we might receive mercy. But ladies and gentlemen, there is, n- there is no mercy without justice. And in this, this very moving poetic statement found in Psalm 85, it says mercy and justice have kissed each other. Where did they kiss? They kissed at Calvary. God's anger over my sin is redirected onto Christ, paving the way for him to show mercy To all who will repent. You know, guys, one of the um, one of the minor frustrations, and I and I say it's minor, about having been in the pastorate as long as I have, is um, is that all of our children are taught about Jonah's whale. I mean, you can go by um, Sunday school classes and there'll be a picture of a whale and, uh, you know, there's BBS curriculum that's about the whale and there's all these, there's a couple of songs about Jonah and the whale and, and, and that's, that's not bad. It's, but, but my point is, the miracle that is contained in the book of Jonah is not about the whale. The real miracle in the book of Jonah is the repentance of Nineveh. And my friends, those of you who sit here this morning Those of you who sit here and who belong to Christ, the same miracle has occurred to you.